Hold on to your butts. <laughs> Boop. You were saying? Welcome to episode 73 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. Tonight, I am joined by Darren Weeks, the guy who learned just how many beers you can drink at a local brewery while riding out a nor'easter. I am his Canadian co-host, and I've come to realize us Canadians don't know shit about snow. You don't. You know a lot about intros, though. That was that was outstanding. God, that was my usual train wreck. Outstanding, outstanding. <laughs> so, how are you? How are things up there? Speaking of snow, I thought you I saw you got a little snow yourself. I yes. noticed. Yeah, we did. I had a work from home day today because of the snow. So, I mean, I don't mind that. But yeah, we got a little bit of snow here. And how about huh? you? Is all that snow melted yet from the nor'easter that went well, through there? Well, it's on its way. It's on its way. Three yeah. feet of snow is going to take a few days, but it's okay. That's part of living where we do, and um, so be it. So be. It. So we'll have a fun time. We haven't talked in a couple of weeks for this podcast. This is I feel it feels like I knocked the rust off a little bit. I know. I was, notwithstanding. Hey, I tried. I did my best. I was determined again to do a good job, but as usual, it's a train wreck, right? Another job done. <laughs> Anyways, we are back at it again. Um after we weren't really on hiatus. We just had some stuff going on. We did a Facebook Live last night and Tuesday night, which was uh which was a lot of fun. And our Facebook Live this weekend will be on Sunday evening just because we have some stuff going on this weekend. But anyway, we are back at it. So we're still hanging out in North Carolina. We are, yeah. Right? Down there in Tobacco Road as we uh, stay down there for the third and final piece of the trilogy of what is Fort Fisher slash Wilmington. As we finish up, put a bow on it, if you will, the battle, the siege, or capture, pick one, of the city of Wilmington which takes place in February of 1865. We're going to talk about that detail in just a few minutes. But since you're the host, I believe there's a question you need to ask me. What are you drinking tonight? Oh, well, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> I'm, I'm drinking, it's called Roman Candle from Bellwoods Brewery up there in Oak Canada. Yep, out of um, Toronto. Yep, and it's, I'm drinking out of the company mug, our Silver Breakfast Club podcast mug, as I am imbibing out of that. So, that being said, what are you drinking? I am drinking Mega Radiant from the awesome Treehouse Brewery in, I guess I could say, no, it's not in Cape Cod. There is one in Cape Cod, but yeah, it's, well, it's Massachusetts. It's good, in Massachusetts. Enough, I enough. just don't like saying the state name because I butcher it every single time. So you actually did pretty well that time. Massachusetts. Oh, that's you got. Well, anybody. maybe I'm finally becoming New Englander. Who knows? Oh, um, okay. but anyway, anyway, I'm drinking it out of my uh, William T. Sherman and his staff that mug because I don't have anything related to Fort Fisher or Wilmington in mug form. So I picked uh, Sherman staff because at the same time as Wilmington is being attacked by the Union Army, Sherman is making his way through the Carolinas. And um, as Wilmington is happening, he's actually going to capture Columbia on February the 17th, 1865. A lot of things going on in this part of the state, Mary. Yeah. So we're going to finish up the, the capture of Wilmington. So when we last saw Wilmington late January 1865, Mary, the second battle of Fort Fisher had just been won by the combined forces of Alfred uh, Terry's provisional force, as well as David Porter's Navy. It shut off Federacy's last seaport. It, it stopped those blockade runners who had all that success getting into the, into the city. And in an essence, what it really did is it put a nail in the Confederacy's coffin, right? And we've mm -hmm. said before, yeah. Robert E. Lee had spoke of the importance of Wilmington. You probably don't remember, but he said as early as January of 1863, that we must defend Wilmington at all hazards. And then not long after that, he said, if Wilmington falls, I cannot maintain my army. He was very prophetic in a lot of ways. And we're going to find out what's going to happen to poor old Wilmington uh, as we talk about this next uh, this battle. We are. And believe it or not, I do remember some stuff. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, so the fall of Fort Fisher means that the fall of Wilmington is inevitable. So a little bit about Wilmington. It is the largest city in North Carolina, a major Atlantic seaport for the Confederates. It's 30 miles upstream from the mouth of the Cape Fear River, which is where Fort Fisher was located. And it's one of the Confederates' most important cities, as you highlighted earlier, because of the supplies that are coming in from these blockade runners. In 1860, Wilmington is about the size of Atlanta, Georgia, population of about 9,500. The supplies that were brought in here included munitions, clothing, food, and they would be transferred to, ra- to railway cars and then sent throughout the South. Many left on the Wilmington and Weldon Railway. Many of these supplies are going to Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. And that's why Lee sees Wilmington and Fort Fisher as being so important because, um, as you know, at this time, the March to the Sea has happened and and Sherman is going through the Carolinas. So those supplies coming from that area are very, very scarce because Sherman has ripped up the infrastructure like the railway. So Lee's got one line. It's from Wilmington from these blockade runners. The blockade runners are coming from Bermuda, the Bahamas. A few are coming from Nova Scotia, but it's mainly supplies forget, from the British. Don't forget Kokomo. Kokomo, yeah. <laughs> Get there fast. I'm going to take, take it, it slow. slow. <laughs> Do you like that I didn't sing that line? Thank you. You're welcome. It doesn't mean I'm not going to sing sometime in this episode. These blockade runners are forced to fly the Confederate insignia because Lincoln had ordered any British pirates be put to death. And that's basically what these British guys are considered as pirates. And the crews of these blockade runners were a boost to the local economy of Wilmington as well. And because of that, Wilmington becomes the typical seaport town. So these guys are going to go to bars, hotels, and the bang barns as well. No. No, not these sailors, right? Other thing, too, that happens is summer of 1862, there's an outbreak of yellow fever that's brought in from these sailors coming into town. And around 1,000 people are infected and 300 people die during this outbreak. So when Norfolk, Virginia falls, Wilmington becomes even more important because then it means it's this kind of this last holdout on the coast for the Confederates. And for the most part, these blockades runners have what was it like an 80 percent it was 80 percent getting getting through and fort fisher would light up their fort lights so they could see where it was because don't forget fort fisher was a, was an earthen fort it was small it was tough to see from the ocean so they have to put lights on you know that light their torches so these these blockaders could see and they can get through and after mobile felt fell it was the only game in town you mentioned the, the town it, it went from a little podunk town to vegas overnight and it's no surprise they had the issues that these big every weekend is fleet week think about it basically yeah so and it was a huge obviously a huge boost to the local economy so you know if wilmington gets captured by the union then they're not going to be bringing in that money from these british sailors slash pirates whatever you want to call them they've got bigger problems than that yes i mean they have not 99 problems than any one of them okay (laughs) they're gonna have a lot of problems if wilmington falls we're going to talk about that is what that's going to do because what it's going to do is it's going to close those walls in on that confederate army both of robert e lee and Mm -hmm. joseph johnston where they literally have to live off the land where there isn't much to eat anymore. The yeah. whole area has been, it's been barren. And when you take out those supplies, that's going to end it. And uh, when we talk about this, we'll see what the union does to actually do it. And it's like the, the blockade running at Wilmington is known as the lifeline of the Confederacy. There was a couple of ironclads that had blocked the approaches to, to Wilmington. There was a North Carolina near Smithville, which was on the Western Bar Inlet. It didn't do much because it had a really weak engine. But the story is that it went to Wilmington to dispute the ownership of cargo on a blockade runner one time named the Hampton. 
Constanza, and its bottom ended up sustaining slow damage from the saltwater marine worms that were there, and it sank on September 27, 1864, having never seen any action. So this is one mm-hmm. of the things that was supposed to help kind of protect these blockade runners coming in. The other was the Raleigh, which saw some action on May the 6th, 1864, when it was attacked by a blockading fleet off New Inlet. Six blockade runners managed to escape, but it ends up running aground on a sandbar in the Cape Fear River. During the war, the Federals managed to wreck, capture, or destroy 130 vessels. That might seem like a lot, a lot, but it really wasn't in the grand scheme of things when you think about, like, you know, 80% make it through. Regarding that 80%, the Confederate War Department said about one in every four steamers is captured by the enemy. We can afford that. All they really lost was one million cubic feet of cargo. And again, that seems like a lot, but when you think about the 80% that got through, that's quite a bit. And it was actually um, Rear Admiral S.P. Lee, a Union guy who is related to Robert E. Lee. He was the one that tried to keep the the ships from getting in, but obviously he doesn't have a lot of success. But his thing was he had these small light draft vessels that would lay close to the inlet and they would signal when an impending escape of a runner was going by. And they did this by sending a rocket up in the air. The blockade runners eventually get really, really smart and they have their own rockets just to con- create all this confusion, right? And these small ships are not going to pursue. When the rockets were spotted, um, the mid-range force would react to these signals and attempt to capture or sink the runner. And then the outer force patrol would kind of watch for in- incoming blockade runners and attempt to capture any runners that may slip by. But again, they don't have a high success rate in doing this. So the Union only is going to capture like 130 vessels in the time of the Civil War. Oh, and that, the big part of that success rate is Fort Fisher. You know, when we talked about that, was there, there was a couple of attempts of Fort Fisher. The first one failed. The second one did uh, did succeed. It fell on January 15, 1865. Federal General in North Carolina area clown Braxton Bragg. <laughs> you know, he decided not to send reinforcements to Fort Fisher's commander, a guy named William H.C. Whiting, as well as Charles Lamb, because it was for fear that he, by doing so, he was going to risk Wilmington. And we talked about that and the, the safety of that town and that safety of the, the Wilmington and Weldon Railroad that you mentioned for Robert E. Lee's supply line. Bragg certainly has has no intention of trying to retake Fort Fisher. It's clear, despite Jefferson Davis's request to do so, locals in Wilmington, for the most part, also fear that he's going to withdraw from the town altogether. He's just going to go. And he orders a complete media blackout of all Civil War things. He, mm. No one could talk about it, apparently. As backwards thinking as that was, that sat not sending troops to protect Fort Fisher because it was going to hurt Wilmington, what that really did is it dealt Wilmington a moral blow. Because when Fort Fisher fell, Wilmington was gone. It was dead. Yeah. Bragg maintained a defense outside of the city, hoping that he could still keep the city from the Federals, which really didn't make any sense. What, what Bragg does do is he takes some troops, he moves them uh, to a place called uh, Sugarloaf, about six miles north of Fort Fisher, on the east side of the Cape Fear River, and put about 6,600 men under the, under the control of a North Carolinian Major Robert Hoke, right? Who was actually sent down from Robert E. Lee from Virginia uh, to help defend Wilmington, to defend the west the west side of the river. So picture a river that's going north and south in there's a peninsula on each side of it. And that's the defenses that they're going to defend. So Bragg is going to evacuate the rebel garrisons at places like Fort Holmes and Fort Caswell and Smithville and places like that. He'll leave behind some guns and ammo, which he wishes he probably had later, by the way. Yeah. And he's he's going to concentrate their forces at a place called Fort Anderson. 
Now, this is directly across the river from Sugarloaf and put Fort Anderson under the command of a South Carolinian named Johnson Haygood. Now, Johnson Haygood was also fighting with Lee up in Petersburg, and he was sent down. He lost 60%, 6-0 of his brigade in yeah. Petersburg before he came here. So he was coming down bleeding from the Savannah mm-hmm. when he made it here, okay? <laughs> now, now, Bragg, he hoped he would place men there and on the west side of the river at Fort Anderson because he was thinking what he could do is he could stop or at least slow the Union advance from going up the river and capturing Wilmington. That was his big plan, which at least slowed them down, speed bumped them. The Confederacy would roll in with about 7,500 men heading into February. By the time the battle started, they had already lost a thousand because many deserted by just walking into the swamps and never coming back. What the hell was what went? But they just clowns. Took, they just took them. See, I don't want to say it, but but despite being completely unnumbered and basically screwed because of the loss of Fort Fisher, the locals in Wilmington did remain confident. The Wilmington Daily Journal they wrote, "The cause is not gone up." This is the time to try our manhood. That's what the newspaper said. Mm-hmm. Okay, sure, sounds good. On the Union side, Washington decided to change things up a little bit again for the second phase of the Second Battle of Fort Fisher. First phase was take the fort. Second phase was take Wilmington. And they were going to put in charge of uh, of this phase. Our old friend from Franklin, Mary, John Schofield of the 23rd yeah. Corps, and he's going to command that 21,000-man 20, uh, Wilmington expeditionary force who arrived in in the area from Alexandria, Virginia in early 1865. So again, some of the players are changing. Some of them are staying the same. Now, you know, we, we did talk a lot about Schofield and that Franklin episode, so we're not going to kind of go through him all over again. He was a New Yorker who ultimately would replace Edwin Stanton as Secretary of War down the road, mm-hmm. whatever, after Andrew Johnson fired him. He'd been charged those Union forces, charged with taking Wilmington. That was the deal that he was going to be. Now, we'll talk in detail how it worked, but in a nutshell, what his plan was going to be was he wanted to do what was a three-pronged attack, right? Yep. He was going attack and this would be again a joint force with porter's navy on the west side of the peninsula he would, would be led in a force by the third division commanding general named and a montreal native mary jacob cox how yes. about that here we go right of scopio's 23rd corps you know cox was born up in what would become canada it wasn't canada yet no, i still think, call it okay? canada he probably spent a lot of time with the kin card and dq but, <laughs> most, but the thing about him though he spent most of his time in ohio mm. where he became the state's governor of 1866 he also became president of the University of Cincinnati, Mary. He also became dean of a law school. He was also a microbiologist. This guy had the single best LinkedIn account in the Civil War. No question. <laughs> I mean, this guy did it all. Now, on the east side of the river, we have Alfred Terry. He's back, right? He's got his 6,000 men. What he would do is drive north and attack Robert Hoke's defensive line, who was sitting at that sugar loaf we talked about, and try to drive them back. Really, what they're going to do is they're going to push, 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 force them back into the town. And then what would happen is Porter's 30 gunboats would sail up the river, blast away at the defenses, and they'd all beat at the quarterback in Wilmington. Yeah, That's kind of, in a nutshell, that's they were going to do. Gunboats were going to hammer those defenses. They were going to eventually do it until they could take control of Wilmington. So February 11th, 1865, the attack is going to begin as Terry's men moving up to attack Hoke Sugarloaf Line. This attack again is going to begin with the bombardment from Porter's guns that were actually anchored on the ocean side. It's firing right over. And then about an hour or so later, Terry's men are going to move in. By late afternoon, Schofield and Terry, they managed to overrun the Confederates, but they think that there's more, conf- that the Confederate works might be too strong. So what we saw 
with previous battles, you know, with Fort Fisher, we're seeing again with this to take Wilmington that they're like, oh, we don't know if we want to go in. There might be too many. They think that it's too strong to be captured by a frontal assault. So Schofield um, makes the decision to capture Wilmington from the west side of the river. Right. But before we jump over to the west, let's finish the east. Yep. Okay. Who are the players in the east? Because it's interesting who they had. So mm-hmm. Terry's going to have Charles uh, Charles Payne's division, which is made up of nine regiments of the USCT, the United States Colored Troops, under the command of a guy named John Ames and a guy named Elias Wright. Yep. They're going to be moving towards Hoax Line, right? So by late in the afternoon on the 11th, they've been going about three hours now to your point, trying to test those lines. Payne's USCT troops are going to hit that staunch rebel line, but they uh, they couldn't drive it back. The Rebs, you're right, Terry and Schofield both said, you know, maybe this isn't a good idea because the line was stronger admittedly than, like you said, than they thought. Now, Payne's guys took 92 casualties, but they couldn't break the line. Now, many of these white officers, okay, this is the first time they saw black men fight. Jacob Cox, he wrote, they were well-disciplined and well-led and went forward with alacrity. No one uses that word anymore, alacrity. Nope. Use that from now on. Capital form, showing that they were good soldiers. So what do you have? You have a situation with these U.S. colored troops, and we're going to talk about them. Many were from North Carolina. We're fighting. Their officers are being quite impressed by them. One of them actually captured a rebel soldier, an officer. This black USCT guy caught a rebel officer and took him to the rear and said, he's my prisoner. Old Massa is. Turns <laughs> out the officer was a soldier's former slave master. Oh, my God. So that must have been a hell of a reunion. Wow. Line, right? But that's what you had. You had these USCT guys from North Carolina. And this guy caught his mass slave master. Can you imagine what that was supposed to be like? Seriously? Oh my God. That's you know, you know, right so there. While this is going on, which is pretty cool, we mentioned the blockade runners a second yeah. ago, right? The blockade runners didn't know the fort had fallen. You forgot how they, how would they, right? Yeah, they would Internet know. was probably taken down. The first yeah. thing they took was the, the Wi-Fi down. They couldn't reach, right? But they, either that, they didn't care. They kept yeah. trying to deliver goods, right? Now, Admiral Porter thought it would be a good idea to keep those signal lights I mentioned on the fort lit to attract them. And then he would assign Lieutenant William Cushing, we're going to talk about him in a little while, yeah. to trap these blockade boats, right? In just a couple of days, they caught three ships, including the British steamer Charlotte, coming from Bermuda. This was the boat that Benjamin Gates found the national treasure. Yes. It wasn't. I, it I was right. just going to say, I thought maybe it was. I heard Charlotte, I'm like, national treasure. Well, it had a secret with it, apparently. It was not the same boat, but it, there was a boat called Charlotte, so I had to bring that up. I you said. got me all excited. Right. I know. So, so, <laughs> but, but to your point, Schofield decides, you know, maybe our best route here, this whole clan's going to be too strong. Let's let, maybe we should try that Fort Anderson Road and see if that works too. Yeah. So they are going to try at Fort Anderson. The Union General Jacob Cox's third division of the 23rd Corps that's going to be ferried to the west bank of the Cape Fear River. And Fort Anderson is the main fort guarding Wilmington, as Darren mentioned earlier. So Porter oh. has, pardon? Did you just say? Who? It's who? Fucker. So Darren mentioned earlier. It's just you and I, you know. I know. Darren. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, if you see Mary, tell her to feel free to continue. Oh my god. <laughs> anyway, Porter has some of his gunboats shell the fort, which silenced all twelve of its guns. And this is where we have Lieutenant commander william b cushing come in here he's really interesting so i have some backstory about him which is pretty cool so he's the brother of alonzo cushing who is killed horribly at gettysburg 
gets a Medal of Honor. Anyway, his brother William is going to serve in the Navy. He is best known for the sinking of the USS Albemarle during a night raid on October the 27th, 1864. And that's a really cool story, which I've got a little bit about it. William is born in Delafield, Wisconsin in 1842, and he ends up moving to Fredonia, New York. He goes to the U.S. Naval Academy, but he um, ends up getting expelled right before graduation for pranks and just not doing great in his classes. But he gets reinstated when he pleads his case to Gideon Wells, the Union Secretary of the Navy under Abraham Lincoln. And it's a good thing Wells does this because Cushing is going to go on to acquire a very distinguished record in the Civil War. He frequently volunteers for dangerous missions, and he's often the one doing the plans for them. And that's where you have this mission against the CSS Albemarle, which was an ironclad. And this was Cushing's daring plan. You know, the problem with the Albemarle was it dominated uh, the, the Roanoke River during the summer of 1864. So Cushing had two small steam engines, which he finds in New York City being built. He wants to fit them with spar torpedoes. So at the very ends of them, they're torpedoes that, you know, basically you have a lanyard and they explode. So he gets these two from New York. And he mounts each of them with a 12-pound Dahlgren howitzer and a 14-foot spear projecting from the, the bow. One of them gets lost at sea, unfortunately, but the other arrives safely. So they launch this spar and they fit it with a lanyard detonated torpedo. October 27th, 28th, 1864, this is going to be a night mission. They go up river and they get past the Confederate sentries that are on a schooner. But then they end up getting spotted and they come under heavy fire from the Albemarle as well as by just some troops that are on the land as well. The Albemarle is defended by these floating log booms, but they turn out to be covered in slime. So their boat just slides right over it really easily. So they get the spar fully against the, the side of the Albemarle's hull and Cushing stands up in the, the bow and detonates it. He does the detonation himself, which is pretty cool. And the explosion just throws everybody off the boat. So Cushing swims to the shore, takes off his uniform, hides out till morning. And then in late in the afternoon, he steals a small boat, goes down river, like sneaks past the Confederates again to rejoin the Union forces. And the Albemarle is going to sink in six feet of water which is below her keel um but the upper armored casement is going to remain mostly dry and the union ends up managing to i think get the flag off and post-civil war cushing is going to be an ordnance officer boston navy yard but he had a lot of health problems and he ends up passing away on december 17th 1874 and he's buried at Bluff Point, which is the U.S. Uh, Naval Academy Cemetery. And the Cushing is the only family to have children buried at both military academies, so both uh, West Point as well as Annapolis. So that's a pretty cool story. Ah, it is one Cushing. of those things, you know. Yeah, no question. He's obviously going to play a big part in this here in a little bit. Yep. So fe February 16th, Jacob Cox's 6,500 men, like I said, are going to be ferried across. They're going to land in that western peninsula, and they're going to start marching towards the fort. And there's that story where they're marching when all those slaves come running out, Celebrating, singing songs, watching these guys shoot, kind of like in the scene Glory. Yeah. Um, watching the uh, watching the men march. Cox is going to try to attack the fort's face, and he's going to have Adele Bart Ames, the second division of the of the twenty fourth corps, and he's going to try to get her on the fort's flank and try to attack that way. He's going to try to surround it in a nutshell, yeah. right? Now, Cox is going to march up that west bank, and he's going to send two brigades, one under Orlando Moore from the 2nd Division, and the other under Thomas Henderson, who commanded the 3rd Brigade under Cox's 3rd Division, and they're going to march towards Fort Anderson. While they're marching, there's going to be a brass band playing from the 104th Ohio playing all these patriotic songs while they're marching. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, it sounds good. Yeah. Now, this is funny. In Defiance, the Rebs, someone had a good sense of humor. Musicians in the fort from the 25th South Carolina respond with songs of their own, kind of like a dueling band. That's right? amazing. Right? They're going to play a song, though. It's called Who's Been Here Since I've Been Gone? You know what that song's about? It's about a song. It's a song about a soldier who returned home to find out his wife was hooking up with his brother. That's the song. Oh, my God. So I don't know. I don't know who the hell put that coin in the jukebox to play that song. But that's what, <laughs> oh were, that's what they were playing with, to, to, to shout out the Union band. Yeah. And that's I thought it was fun. Federal troops under Ames are going to go through the swamp and they're going to get her, try to get around that rebel flag, like I said. And they're going to use Brigadier General John Caseman's brigade as well as well as a guy named Oscar Sterl uh, from Cox's division. They're the ones who, you know, they're the lucky guys who get to box, you know, go through the muck and the crap to try to get through around the side of the yeah. fort. Now, fortunately for these troops, like you mentioned a little while ago, Porter's guns had taken out all 12 of their guns. So yep. they had kind of an easy walk into the fort. And they managed um, to do that because of Cushing and his um, fake right. monitor that he constructed, which tricks the Confederates into detonating their their mines that they have in the water. So Porter's able to get his gunboats through and able to right. be able to mm-hmm. do this. So this fort is a sitting duck. You know, Cox and Ames are right there. They're gonna they're ready for to take it. The thing about this attack though is like what in this whole battle, whenever the Union troops are ready to fight, the rebels are gonna abandon their position. And they're gonna fall back towards Wilmington. Yep. And that's what happened here at Fort Anderson. It's kind of like a 19th century whack-a-mole game where they just you just you can't get them yep. because they keep fall they keep falling back. Now Hague would be mentioned he knew those 12 guns were gone. He got word from the Union troops who were all around him at this point, planning on, on surrounding the whole fort in the cover of darkness on February 18th, he pulls out his F this card and he's going to decide to abandon the fort. He'll fall back to a new defensive line at a place called Town Creek. Now, before leaving, he's going to kind of lay out his dead at a, at a place called St. Philip's Church, just kind of lay him there for some reason. You know, soon later, troops under Henderson, that brigade are going to happily go into the fort and take the fort. Pretty much untouched. Very, yep. you know, very easy attack. Now, Cox was still hoping to bag Haygood, right? It was so must have been so frustrating for Cox because he was so close and Cox kept falling back. Now, while this is going on on the west side, over on the east side, Robert Hoke's men have also fallen back to a new line. They're about three miles now south of Wilmington. Now, like Cox, Terry, Alfred Terry had no choice but to pursue Hoke as well because they're going up to Wilmington. Yep. And instead of fighting and just ending them, they keep falling back. So well, he's following them very cautiously because he doesn't know what to expect. And I think this is something like this seems to be like a pattern with Terry is he seems like, you know, he'll get really close to something and be like, mm, I don't know. You know, he seems to be well, he very overly he, cautious. He, he definitely smelled a rat. When they kept falling back, he definitely thought that there was a possibility they were going to be ambushed because it just seemed too easy. Well, right? it turns out that Hoke does outnumber him. At one point, but once they get Ames's men ferried back across, then Terry's uh-huh. okay. The Rebs, you know, they're going to release those 200 torpedoes into the water, right? And, and not just that, the Quaker boat they did, this is a big issue because there was a lot of them. Porter decided that what he had to do was put guys on rowboats with big nets to go and get them. Yeah. How's that for a fun job, right? To go before the torpedoes floated down the river and hit them. So this was, again, this was ordered by Cushing too. So he had to deal with that. And it, he, for the most part, took care of it. So the boats kind of had a clear path too. Now, back to that west side again, the, the Town Creek line. This is kind of going on at the same time. So you kind of have to do it simultaneously. Yeah. Haygood burned the only bridge that crossed Town Creek to slow Cox's advance yeah. uh, north. And he set up a line just on the northern side uh, across the river there. Now, Cox, you know, he has no bridge and he has to get across. And he's trying to find a way to ford this creek and he can't do it. It's just shitty ground. It's swampy. 
the train was just too hard to find. And this is when you get lucky, right? Yeah. You need to, to, right? For whatever reason, Haygood didn't notice a small cotton barge on Cox's side of Town Creek. And the Federals heard about it because of a local sled. It goes, hey, you can't cross. I just have to lose a boat over here if you want to take this boat, right? It only took 75 guys at a time. But uh, eventually, Cox got all three brigades across this yep. creek. And he left the fourth one to back to kind of cover them. So he got all of his guys across this creek now. Now, once Cox got his three, there were 3,000 guys. Once he got 3,000 men across, they charged bayonets across his open fields. And the firefight was so brutal that it caught all the grass on fire. That's what some of the soldiers said. It was quite a quite a thing. Haygood, for this part, knew he was basically foobar at this point. Yep. It, he just did. He's going to fall back yet again. This time he's going to go all the way back to Wilmington. He'll leave two regiments, 370 guys to kind of cover the retreat. They're all going to be caught. They're prisoners. That until the Union gets two artillery as well from that. Right. Haygood, is, is, he's evacuated the dance floor, as you like to say there. <laughs> um, and what, what Cox, the first thing Cox does is he rebuilds those bridges. And he's not only going to have that artillery, he's going to get some more from Schofield to yeah. bring across. So now as they all approach Wilmington, they arrive just almost the same time as Porter's gunboats go within the firing range of the city now, right? So there are going to be some Rebs that are going to be in a place called Eagle Island. It's a small island that separates Cape Fear uh, and the Brunswick Rivers near Wilmington. As the Union troops approached, you know, they started firing artillery at the Union guys. And what happened was the Union guys respond to these Ohio guys with these rifle guns, right? And they returned fire. Some of the shots started to fall into the city. And Haygood's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know what? They're going to blow the whole friggin' city up here. Stop shooting. So the Rebs stopped shooting. That was kind of the west side. Now, on the eastern side again, Terry's men continued to press on Hoke's men as they inched forward slowly towards Wilmington from the other side of the river. Now, February 20th, Alfred Terry is going to meet with General Charles Payne. Now, he's that Harvard guy we talked about from Boston, commanded the 3rd Division of the 25th Corps. He's going to command three brigades of those USCTs we talked about. And these are the guys who fought at Fort Battle for the 2nd Fort Fisher. So they're battle-tested guys. Terry and Payne decide to use these soldiers yet again to try to overrun Hoke's line. And like I said before, many of these guys are from, from North Carolina. So they kind of were fighting for their homes as well. Hoke had fallen back to a junction of, um, of a place called Federal Point Road and a small lane called Forks Road. This defensive line that's set up along this Forks Road would be really Hoke's kind of last stand. His men had set up these really strong breastworks made of pine trees and sand. They've been set up before by slaves that have fed Wilmington before. But it's a hell of a defensive line. Terry's guys pursued, and there was that cool story that was reported in the Philadelphia Inquirer around this time. There was a guy, a Union corporal named Jacob Horn, and he's in the Union. He asked permission to stop at his parents' house that was on the way up the peninsula. Um, it was granted, and it was said in the paper that the soldier was soon clasped in the arms of his overjoyed mother. So we saw his mother. Okay. Now what's cool about it is she, the mother tells Jacob, your brother Hosea was here yesterday. Hosea Horn was a member of the Confederate Wilmington horse artillery. Oh, wow. And he stopped there with the Confederates pulling away from home just the day before. So just imagine that for a second. You're a mother and you have a son on each side stopping at your house on consecutive days oh about God. to fight each other. Right. So Hoke had one brigade of infantry, guys from the 80, um, the 8th, the 31st, the 51st, and the 61st, North Carolina. He had him under a guy named Thomas Lanier Klingman, 1832, University of North Carolina graduate, uh, also a U.S. senator in 1858, who got the old heave-ho for supporting the Confederacy. <laughs> 
that got they got rid of that. Hulk had that brigade. He also had that horse artillery I just mentioned with um with Horn. Mm-hmm. Terry's going to advance with fifty five hundred men under the men from Ames Second Division and Payne's Third Division of 3,300 uh, U.S. colored troops from the 24th Corps, and they're going to march directly into Hoke's line. When they hit this line, the Federals are going to take high casualties, and they attacked Hoke's entrenched line, and they really advanced on really sloppy ground. So you got that, that small little forks road and surrounded on both sides by swamp. So this, a lot of these guys are marching through yeah, the muck no, and crap to, to get there. The lead brigade was a, was under a guy named Colonel Elias Wright's 1st USCT Brigade of about 2,000 guys in primarily the 5th USCT Regiment, who did most of this fighting on this uh, this Forks Road. These guys are going to fight for 34 hours, okay, against a well-entrenched rebel line. And poor Mrs. Horn could hear the battle from her house. That's how close they were, right? So imagine what's going through her mind, right? On the second day, which is the 21st of February, this battle is going to continue and the feds are going to be are going to be kind of looking for a weak spot in the line because it's so entrenched so well, it's just hard to beat. Mm-hmm. It was around this time they started to see that black smoke starting to appear from the direction of Wilmington, right? Yep. And so they're thinking, well, maybe they're getting ready to go. This fight along this Forks Road, it would continue into the next day, too, on the 22nd. That was the plan. But when the sun rose on February 22nd, the Rebs, gone. They're they gone. disappear, which yep. they want to do. They had fallen back to Wilmington, as did Haygood's men on the other side of the river. Much of the delight of these USCT troops, because that meant that Schofield now, and them, too, were going to get to you know, slide right into Wilmington. Now, what makes what makes this battle cool, and I don't know if you how much you know about this, this battle of Forks Road, Mary, was besides the fact that USCT guys fought in it, the local USCT North Carolinians fought for it. It's a battlefield that was not discovered until the 1980s. I think I knew okay? that about it. I remember and, and, and it's really it's so a, a couple of historians by the name of Robert Treadwell and Charles Fonville, mm-hmm. they were dis- they discovered relics of this battle and they f- figured out what the hell happened to it. They got to name it. How cool that is. That's right? so cool. So they call it the Battle of Forks Road. And so, and you can go visit the site today. It's still there. You know, you can still see the breastworks. The Confederates at this point were kind of, um, they were kind of screwed. Yeah, Bragg, Bragg pulls out his F this card around the 21st. And he's like, we're going to have to abandon the city, right? <laughs> and so he evacuates Union prisoners that are there and anything of military value. But cotton, tobacco is burned. There's buildings burned. He probably burned all the bang barns. Like all that stuff is, is going to be burned. And it kind of gives like, you know, you, you think back to on February the 17th. Well, all this shit is happening. Columbia has been captured. And, you know, it's there's a lot of burning that happens in Colombia, And yes, some of it is Union troops that cause it, but who it probably was that started it was Wade Hampton's cavalry. Because yeah, this, I mean, that's what they have to do, right? Like you're not going to leave the enemy shit behind. So I think that kind of gives a little bit more towards that Sherman didn't walk in and torch that city because this is, look at what Bragg is doing here at Wilmington. He's and, and the Union troops can see the black smoke and that's the cotton and the tobacco burning so they don't fall into Union hands. He's burning, you know, the, the munitions where they're storing them. Like he's burning all these buildings that would be of use to the Union. Well, it's interesting, but Bragg, you know, it wasn't really Bragg's idea to do that, though. Bragg no. is going to write to Robert E. Lee. He's going to yeah. see Hulk and Haygood. Hey, where do you guys come from? Right there. He's yeah. got no one else. He's got the boat. So he, he's going to give the evacuation order. And that's obviously where all of Haygood's guys disappeared to in the 22nd mm-hmm. when the USCT guys were there. They yeah. all came back. Bragg is going to write to Robert E. Lee. He's going to say, the enemy is in force on the West and on our communication lines are cut. We are greatly outnumbered. Lee's going to respond, destroy all cotton, tobacco, 
DQs and naval stories <laughs> that would otherwise fall in the hands of the enemy. So it was Lee who told him to torch it, which is interesting because that was the supplies, right? What are the Union soldiers going to do with their DQ gift cards? They're probably still there. Another battle if we waited to be discovered. We can go find Well, they don't expire, so they can come to King Cardine then. You got it. So Bragg is going to write back. and He's going to say, Our small force rendered it impossible to make any serious stand. We are greatly embarrassed by prisoners. The enemy refusing to receive them or entertain any proposition of exchange. So the feds, we saw this with Gettysburg, right? Yeah. The feds would not exchange them knowing it would slow their role out of town. Now, Bragg had no choice but to burn the warehouses and supplies and use his cavalry, you know, Hampton, to destroy all the bridges in town as well as his supplies. Bragg, it's interesting, is going to write after the evacuation. He's going to write, by the active and efficient operation of the Wilmington and Weldon Railroad, we succeeded in getting all the prisoners able to travel in all important stores. Some naval stores had a small lot of cotton and tobacco were destroyed by fire. They could, here's my favorite line, they could have been saved for not the occupation in the trains by prisoners. So what he's saying is, if I had, I, I could save all the supplies, but I had to take the prisoners. Well, not my fault. You know, he's pulling the shaggy card again, right? Wow. That's, he said, I would have, ta- I would have given you a ride home, but I just want to run in the car. That's kind of what he says. That's so, so shitty. So that's what he says. I mean, I don't know how big that train must have been. Okay, but but he's going to say that, right? Bragg is going to he's going to retreat to avoid the Federals. He's going to head north, hoping to connect with Lee and support him in Virginia. We talked about that before. Yep. But it's funny because Jacob Cox, now from Montreal, he he's going to learn the city's abandoned by the rebels by citizens of Wilmington. Yeah. And Jacob Cox is going to write. Bragg had carefully removed all boats from the outer side of the channel, but citizens anxious to prevent us from firing on the town came over in skiffs. And we learned the Confederate forces had marched towards Goldsboro, leaving the way open for Terry's march into the city, which took place in the early morning of the 22nd, which we were happy to recall was George Washington's birthday, which is pretty cool, right? That is cool. So theme that goes on with this. So Terry's men, both black and white soldiers, are going to march into Wilmington. Patriotic music is blasting and playing. You can just just imagine. David Porter, he's going to write to Gideon Wells. He's going to write, I have the honor to inform you that Wilmington has been evacuated and is in possession of our troops. I had the pleasure of placing the flag on Fort Strong. There's another close defensive point at noon today. We shall fire a 35-gun salute, that being the anniversary of Washington's birthday. So this Washington's birthday is not being missed by anybody. It's a no. big deal. We saw with July 4th, Vicksburg and Gettysburg, and another national big moment, right? Terry will take the official surrender of the town by a guy named John Dawson, who's the mayor. Now, this is a cool story, too. Terry is going to set up his headquarters and raise the old Stars and Stripes Mary at the home of a Dr. John Bellamy, right, who owned the best mansion in town. Big place, right? And this Bellamy was a hardcore secessionist. He hosted a torchlight party to celebrate secession when North Carolina wow. seceded. So Bellamy, he finds out that there are a bunch of Union guys in his house. And he's like, fuck, no way. He left the town to avoid the war. You know, he left. He just got the hell out of Dodge. Yeah. That's why the house is vacant, okay? Bellamy is going to apply to General uh, Terry's chief of staff, a guy named Brigadier, Brigadier General Joseph Hawley, for permission to return to his house. Hawley was a radical Republican from North Carolina. He denied Bellamy's request. And he responded, he says, having for four years been making your bed, you must lie in it for a while. 
That's what he wrote to Bellamy. Ooh. So he's, he's like, go screw, right? Wow. Now, as, as much as Bellamy and the rest of the South were pissed, the North was completely galvanized by this. Not just cutting Lee's supply line, it was a gigantic shot in the arm of the North, who saw this war now as basically won and all within sight. Even the New York Times, New York Times, February 25th, in 1865, what they wrote in this article was, had anyone at the time of the presidential election in November last predicted the military achievements of the last three months of winter, he would have been looked upon as a lunatic. But this bold catalog gives us a faint idea of the greatness and triumphs of the armies of the Union and the staggering blows afflicted on the rebellious South. The more, this morning was Wilmington, which was proudly uh, recorded as being under our flag on Wednesday last, Washington's birthday. Our present president, our troops entered and took possession of this long-sought prize. So we look at it from a military standpoint a lot, right? Yep. Where capturing Wil Wilmington was a big military boon. It gave Schofield and Sherman that supply base on the water. It denied Lee. But what this really did, this was a high five in the street moment in the North because they thought they realized now this is the quarterback getting ready to take a knee with, with a minute to go in the clock run. They knew it was over. Yeah, they, they did. And, you know, their, their next thing that they're going to do, like, you know, Grant had written to Sherman on January the 21st, 1865. So this is before, this is, you know, a month and a day before Wil Wilmington falls into Union hands. And he says, if Wilmington is captured, Schofield will go there. If not, he will be sent to New Bern. In either event, all surplus forces at the two points will move to the interior to towards Goldsboro in cooperation with your movements. This capturing of Wilmington is in cooperation with what Sherman is doing in the Carolinas right now. Their next objective is going to be Goldsboro. And Braxton Bragg has gone to Goldsboro, but in March of 1865, at less than, you know, a little less than a month after Wilmington has fallen into Union hands, Goldsboro is going to be seized by the Union, and it is a major railway hub. So they are slowly... Well, I shouldn't say slowly. They were quickly getting what they want, right? You know, Wilmington was a huge get for them. Huge, like, pay, you know, from kind of like a mor moral standpoint, military standpoint. Oh, but, yeah. but, you know, Grant's ultimate goal was actually Goldsboro. And they got it. And that was going to be Sherman's supply base as well. And then also at the end of this, some members of the Confederacy call for the resignation of Jeff Davis because they couldn't believe that he allowed for this to happen. Yeah, well, he was telling them to keep the force, keep doing this. You yeah. know, he tried. I mean, it really, you know, you look at how this whole thing is. This whole thing was was lost when Bragg gave up Fort Fisher and let him have it because he yeah. really did. He yeah, really, he really just did. didn't. I don't know if it, he just didn't. It just didn't click with him. Like, well, I got to protect Wilmington. Like, no, dude, you, you actually have to protect the fort. Yeah, I think he was afraid of spreading his troops too yep. thin. He still had to worry about an, an Orleans attack from the north. He, I, you can see he tried. You know, he did get troops. You know, he had you know. He had Haygood, obviously, who came down. He, he had, you know, he had uh, a whole bunch of troops from, from uh, Lee's Army in Northern Virginia. They were banged up when they got there, but he had yeah. something. But, you know, for this, as far as the Wilmington siege goes, the, 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 casualties, the casualties were actually pretty low, just about 300 for the Union, about 800 mm -hmm. for the Confederates. But like I said before, the fall of Wilmington was the nail in the coffin. Uh, for the Confederacy. Lee, you know, he was going to be running away from, from Richmond for looking for supplies. He yeah, had and no, he's not no going to get them. He, you know, the, Wilmington was the major supplier for the Army of Northern Virginia. So it's no coincidence that on April the 9th, Lee surrenders to, to General Grant at Appomattox. And it's not too hard to trace back where, why it happened. I mean, the Fort Fisher battles, the capturing Fort Fisher in the second battle was the, was the domino that got to Wilmington. And that was a domino that that really bled Lee out that end of the war, just a mock up. No, so so if you if you're looking for 
you know, to play the Kevin, you know, the Kevin Bacon game. Yep. It's 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 easy to to realize that Appomattox happens because of Wilmington, which happened because of Fort Fisher. And it was because of the efforts of people like David Porter, for example, who continually wanted to fight this attack and want to take Fort Fisher. He finally got his wish. You know, you had some of the, the, the mistakes of the of the, the Christmas the Christmas Day one with Butler, but again, you bring the right guys in, you bring yeah, in like Terry, Terry in, and Schofield. You know, so you do the right things to, to take the battle and finally take it. So if you're looking for a real cause of this war ending uh, when it did, this war probably would have gone into the summertime if Fort Fisher didn't fall. There's no question of what happened. Now, the rebels weren't going to win. It was never a question of it was the winning. It was a question of when. The longer they kept that war going, especially if they fell into a guerrilla war like some guys yeah. like E.P. Alexander wanted to do, mm-hmm. they would at least had supplies. And there's a lot yeah. of things they could have had. But this really was cutting, was, was locking the fridge on them. And you, it was a matter of time until they had to surrender. That's exactly what happened. So so I think um, a lot more study needs to be done into Fort Fisher yep. and Wilmington because I don't think it's um, I don't think it's studied enough. I think it's certainly worthy of three episodes of a, of the, the, the threesome we pulled off here with these three. Ooh. And I think... Um, <laughs> And I think it's uh, it'd be a lot of fun to talk about going forward. So uh, what's next for us, Mary? Uh, next is Mill Springs. We're going to be talking that. Yeah. And then after that, we got to sit down and do some planning uh, to figure out what else we're, we're going to be doing. We will be doing our roundtable in February, which I believe it is going to be on February the 16th. Oh, Wednesday, February. two days after Hancock's birthday. Mary. Yes, it is. Yes, because his birthday uh-huh. is Valentine's Day. It um, certainly is. But just to add in a little bit about Fort Fisher, like in Wilmington, like what you said, like it is so, un- it seems so understudied in the Civil War. Oh. And I think it's because of what you have going on at the same time of it. Again, it's this like, not just the Eastern Theater, but it's also in the Western Theater with Sherman doing his March to the Sea you know what's happening in the Carolinas too it just kind of gets overshadowed by that but it is kind of the final nail in the the coffin of the confederacy because without Wilmington you're not going to get supplies to Robert E. Lee and that's a huge thing and I mean the supplies have already been cut a little bit I shouldn't say a little bit a lot because of Sherman's March to the Sea but they're cut even more by this loss of Wilmington right so everything is playing into it but like you said, I think without Wilmington, you know, you'd have the, this war going into the summer. So I think that's a really good point. But yeah, definitely Wilmington is understudied. And uh, I really enjoyed these three episodes that we we got to do about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So very good time. Good time had by us, by both of us, and especially me, because I get to do this with you. So mm-hmm. any final words from you, Finchero? Well, same. I get to do this with you, and that's pretty awesome. So, um, yeah, we will be back with y'all on Sunday Sunday evening with a Facebook Live. And... It was Sunday evening again, back-to-back, nocturnal. Yep. Uh, okay. Yep. Forward to a little that, evening so. action. Absolutely. Having fun with that. <laughs> so, anyway. All right. So, off we go. Heading up once again to the uh, to the, uh, the Great White North and beyond. So, off we go. Thanks for listening, everybody. We appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you uh, join us on our live. Have a great end of the week. Stay warm where you are. Hope you're avoiding all the snow as we head off and finally leave North Carolina. Yeah. See y'all later. Adios, everybody. Yep. <laughs>